I am so grateful for all the talented youth we have in this congregation. So, um, a comment in this morning's Sunday school class reminded me of a play that I saw yesterday. I went to see a play that the Hill Girls start, well, were in, participated in, called uh, The Mouse That Roared. And um, Yannicka was given a little testimony about how she, we were talking about angels and she was given a little testimony about how she saw a person in front of her buying a little booklet about angels and most of the things that you find in little booklets about angels in a superstore or market uh, are misleading. And so she was kind of nervous at the idea of this lady uh, reading this and so she chased her down after she got out of the um, checking line and tried to point her to Christ to put the context of angels in Christ. And the funny thought that came to me was that Yannicka is that little mouse that roared. You think of her as timid and kind and polite, which she is all that. But she's that, she has that spiritual roar to her. There's a tenacity there. And in this play, there was uh, it's a, a comedy and there was this country of Fenwick, if you've seen the movie or the play before, it's uh, huge. It's three miles by five miles. And anyway, one of the claims to fame is that there's this little mouse in the forest that roars, and you, they never really, you never really see it, but it's there. And I think of that as Yannicka. But as I sat there, ready to be entertained... And I read the little bulletin that they handed out when you come in there, the pamphlet. And it described the scenes. And one of the scenes was described as the throne room of Fenwick. The throne room. Well, of course I perked up at that because my head has been in the throne room of heaven for a couple months now. So I was excited to see what the throne room of Fenwick look like and it was pretty typical of course they're limited in their props this is just a kind of homegrown um, playwrights and acting and things like that but they had a big chair in the front of the stage and on each side two little sub chairs or little chairs for those that served the person that was seated on the throne so we still are treated to concepts in our culture of of the of the reality of greatness and servants that surround the greatness of somebody who is on the throne. And God, in the book of Revelation, before we get treated to all the mysterious stuff of the future, He focuses in on the throne room of heaven. So before we're kind of allowed to advance into what's to come, he just puts us right here. He fixes us right here for a few chapters so that we understand the importance of heaven and the person of heaven as Noah reminded us in worship this morning. The throne room, every, and the reason that's important is because everything that happens after this point comes from the throne room of heaven. It's all about this and we'll get into the seven seals and that's the, the king uh, on the throne is, is holding the Scroll with the seven seals and it has to be open. Everything has to happen around the throne room of heaven. The king of the universe, Christ, God, the Holy Spirit, 
is in charge of everything that happens. Before we get into the things that happen, we get to see what happens around the throne. And it's a beautiful vision of worship where the angelic beings that we learned about this morning in Sunday school, these great beings, they're created beings, but they're tremendously great created beings, uh, purposely created to serve God and to minister to God and in His kingdom. These tremendously great beings are around the throne, worshiping the king on the throne. So that's the vision that we get first. It's like a light show. There's, there's precious jewels there. There's lights there. Uh, there's, there's glory there. There's beauty there. And we just take it all in. It's an invaluable sight. So that's what we want to be thinking about as we proceed in the book of Revelation. We want to have this tremendously high view of the worthiness of God. We looked at the first three verses of this chapter, and this morning I, lo- I want to look at the rest of the verses, but I'm going to read the whole chapter just so we can, we can immerse ourselves in this as we get this glimpse. And you really see here the, um, the Apostle John trying to stretch the human language as much as he can to describe this otherworldly vision that he is seeing as he is brought or invited up and through the doorway to heaven. Revelation 4. After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne, and he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were twenty-four thrones, and seated on the thrones were twenty-four elders, clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder, And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass, like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature, like a lion. The second living creature, like an ox. The third living creature, with the face of a man. And the fourth living creature, like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night, they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor And thanks to Him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever. The twenty-four elders fall down before Him who is seated on the throne and worship Him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are You, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For You created all things, and by Your will they existed and were created what a vision of what takes place 
in heaven. Somebody better get that. So what I want to do in this message is use the prepositions that John uses to describe, try to grasp and describe this vision that he has. He uses a lot of prepositions. It's what's above the throne and from the throne and beside the throne and under the throne and over the throne. Everything is revolving around the throne. And so I'm going to use, pluck out four of those prepositions to kind of guide the message this morning. So first, around the throne in verse 4. Though we have the throne, the main throne, but around this throne we have, uh, if you will, sub-thrones. There are other thrones, it turns out, in heaven, not just the main throne. And that's also to symbolize the greatness of creatures that God has brought into being. And on these thrones are, uh, you have what we'll learn are seraphim, the the creatures, but you also have elders. It reminds me just a little bit of what our thanksgivings look like sometimes. And that is you have the main table where the adults sit, but then sometimes you set up little tables where the kids sit and they have their little tables and their little chairs and so forth. And so it's like a a sub-table. And up in heaven you have the main uh, throne, but then you have these sub-thrones here. Seated on these thrones, these mini-thrones, sub-thrones, if you will, are 24 elders. Now you would think that the 24 elders, this scene that we are treated to, would obviously be elders that we have in our churches because the scriptures talk about appointing elders in all the churches because churches need leaders. Uh, These elders have white, they're clothed in white, and these elders have crowns on their heads. But we're not really exactly sure if these are actual elders from the church because they are are, uh, ministering in a way that angels minister to. So there's two different views. One is that, well, these are the elders of the church. And another is, no, these are actually angels. And I'll just spend a brief time at examining those two ideas. The first is that there's 24, and 12 of the 24 represent the 12 tribes of Israel. The other 12 represent the 12 apostles. And it would be a beautiful thing to envision that the church throughout the ages, the Old Testament and the New Testament, coming together with 24 elders seated on thrones, bowing before the Lord in acts of worship. And there's a little bit of reason to um, believe that this is the case. Actually, I would love for for this to be the case because I would love to picture heaven in that way. Matthew 19, 28, Jesus says, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on His glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. So some people make that jump. That's not exactly the same. There's twelve and there's twenty-four in heaven, but some people make that, that leap that, well, it must be, makes sense that it would be, that would be the case. But as we, as we continue to read the book, we get indications that maybe that's not the case. You know, you have the simple fact that even in the first few chapters, Jesus addresses the church, but he addresses the angel of each church. Whereas, I'm thinking, why don't you address the elders of the church, the leaders of the church, but he addresses the angel of the church? Because from the heavenly perspective, that's how involved angels are. 
in the kingdom of God. That there were angels assigned over each church. So in this case, whereas we, we might want this to be elders again, it could very well be angels. Also, when the, um, <clears throat> one of the folks in Sunday school this morning mentioned about the new song. Now, the angels didn't sing the new song that we haven't gotten to yet in Revelation because they're not humanity. They're not redeemed. The elders, you'll find out later, do not join in this new song. So there's warrant to believe both sides here, whether they're elders or um, angels. But for this scene, the most important thing is that they are on thrones, but it's not necessarily who they are, and even with the creatures, it's what they're doing. We're not going to understand these silly-looking creatures with wings and eyes all over the place, and we may not quite... It's just not clear enough, especially in apocalyptic, apocalyptic literature, what exactly they are in the details. But what is so very clear is what they're doing around the throne. And that is they're casting their crowns. They're, they're bowing themselves before the great one on the great throne. So you get this picture of these created beings that they exist. They're doing exactly what they exist for. They're doing what they were created to do, and that is to minister to the great God. And so these great beings are ministering, to whatever they are, they're ministering to the great God here. Second, we see, so that's around the throne, very, very busy throne, things happening from every direction. We see from the throne, verse 5, from the throne come flashings, flashes of lightning, and rumbles and peals of thunder. That's the core symbolism of a storm, a great storm. Storms are powerful. You know, the more powerful the storm, the smaller you feel. Don't you sometimes, when you see the acts of nature and storms, feel small? It's a reminder of how limited we are. I was reminded as I looked at this scripture that for this year's Maundy Thursday service, we gathered as we do in the evening, the Thursday, to prepare ourselves for the Easter, the Passion Week and celebration. But on this particular Maundy Thursday, this last one that we celebrated, it, the, the weather conditions were atrocious. There was a storm going on. As a matter of fact, as I sat here, Wait a minute. Yeah, as I sat there uh, during this service before I I got up, you could feel the church shaking, the ground shaking, because there were were flashes of lightning, and then you know you're going to hear the boom sometime after, and there were peals of thunder, the, the rumblings there, and you could just feel the building shake. It's intimidating. You know, the winds get to blow. But I want to just kind of take a little rabbit trail from that scene and mention something that I think will, for the purpose of encouraging you as a body of Christ. As I was thinking about coming to this service at my house, and I don't know what it was like, you know, storms can be fierce, more fierce in one place than another, so I don't know what it was like where you live. But in my house down the road, when it was time to come, it was just raining sideways. And it was one of those deals where Lisa and I, we got in the car and we're driving and the, the limbs 
the wind is, is very strong and the limbs are flying through the air, the leaves and things. And I'm thinking, I've got to watch out for it might be a fallen tree in the road. And I made the comment, I can't remember if it was out loud or in my head. <clears throat> I made the comment, you know, if, if I wasn't the pastor of this church and I don't know that I would want to be out in this kind of weather. So I just, that came to my, so I get here after those conditions and there's Mr. Dwight who came here, his wife's in the hospital at the time. He came here to set everything up for Monday Thursday service. And then as I stood up to, uh, and there were others that were here. I don't know what kind of weather conditions you had to drive through to get here, but there were plenty of others that were here. And then as I stood up to begin the service, through the door came Floyd and Millie. Some of the furthest away. Through the doors to come worship God from Monday Thursday. And I watched them come and they were, had their umbrellas and they were wet because they endured the weather. And I watched them. And before I said a word at Monday Thursday, I was so rebuked in my heart that I had said, you know, if I wasn't the pastor, I don't know that I would even want to come out tonight. And then I see these other people. It would be more difficult for them to, go to travel farther and have more inconveniences going on in their lives here ready to worship the Lord. So I say that not just so you rebuke me for my selfishness, but so you are encouraged at the dedication and the loyalty of your brothers and sisters in Christ at New Covenant Fellowship. So I mentioned, we're talking about a storm here, and I mentioned that when, the, when a biblical people would be reading Revelation, they would immediately be drawn to the days of Moses when the law was given and it specifically says in Scripture that this is the kind of things that happen when God draws near to His people and, do, and does big things. And so when the Decalogue was given in the days of Moses, God was up on the mountain and He summoned Moses up there and it was thunder, it was lightning, the ground was shaking under the people's feet. They were forbidden to even touch the mountain. Not even livestock could touch the mountain. Or they were told to put an arrow through it. That's how serious this was. It's very intimidating. You feel very, very small under these circumstances. So the, the throne is a, in, in one sense, it's an intimidating place because there's so much power, there's so much glory going on there. And it reminds me of one of the greatest books ever written, series of books, Chronicles of Narnia, of course, where Lucy, the Aslan is the Christ figure, and she's a little nervous about meeting Aslan, this, this lion, and wonders, is it safe? I quote, I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Is it safe? And Miss, Mr. Beaver said, safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. That's what I see here. It, it, there's just an enormous amount of power and glory. All the creatures are bowed down to it. And in that sense, it's not safe. But it's good. God is good. 
And whenever he manifests his power, whether it's to bless people in a miraculous way, whether it's to bring the dead out of the tomb or out of the ground, or whether it's to judge wickedness with, with, with extreme manifestations of this kind of power, it's all good. Whatever he does is good. So he wields it in a glorious, powerful, good way. So this is what is going on around the throne, and then we see what's going on from the throne, and now we look at what happens before the throne. So before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne, there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. The throne is a busy place. Is it not? So we heard about these seven spirits in chapter 1, verse 4, and concluded that God, of course, doesn't have seven spirits. They're, they are manifestations of the Spirit of God. His wisdom, His counsel is found in, I believe it's Isaiah 4. Um, it's either Isaiah 4 or 11, but His wisdom, His counsel, and His power. It's the manifestations, the seven manifestations of the Spirit of God. We also learned previously that the, the churches are God's lamps. They're God's lights when we looked at the seven churches. And so in some kind of mysterious way before the throne, you have the Spirit of God and, and, and the churches of God, if you will, working together, collaborating together before the throne of God in this vision. And you also have a sea of glass-like crystal before the throne. So what does all this mean? Why a sea? Now in Revelation 21 and 22, we're going to read, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, and there was no more sea. And yet in the beginning here, in Revelation 4, we see that there is a sea of glass or like crystal. So there's no more sea. Well, of course, we know there's plenty of water in heaven because there's also a river that flows. We will find a river that f of life that flows from the very throne room of God. So what do we do with this? In, there are two ways to look at this. The, the common way is to think, well, it's a sea of glass. And so that symbolizes a peace. It symbolizes a calmness. Now, we go to uh, lakes, rivers, we go to beaches and oceans. We love to behold bodies of water. It does something to us. Uh, we, we get away from it all, right? And so that we can relax and leave the burdens and the busyness of life. And we'll go park it on the beach in the sand and just watch the waves come and slap against the shore. And it, it creates that atmosphere. So it's possible that the symbolism is one of peace. Uh, one of the problems with that is that in the Old Testament, the God's people, the Jews, they didn't like the ocean. They didn't like the sea. And it's spoken about as the thing to be feared. It's where the storms come from the sea and, and they destroy our crops and, and they cause darkness and it's a scary thing and bad things come out of the sea. It wasn't peaceful for them at all. They did not like the sea. And so, what we have that that we have to 
uh, consider as well. It could symbolize, therefore, the terrifying aspect of the glory of God. The fact that though He's, he's holy and He's good, there is a, a part of God that we always have to be careful with. You, you can't ever get so comfortable in the presence of God that you forget whose presence you're in because there is a fierceness to the power of God. God judges everything in, the, in His universe that He created that gets out of line. Everything, every thought we're told, every partial thought that is out of line with God will be judged. Now, of course, it can be judged on the cross with Christ or we will bear wrath if we fail to believe in Christ. But God is powerful and in that sense, terrifying. So I'm, it's not worth the fight over it for me. I see both could be true in this. But I would have to lean towards the terrifying part simply because when you read what's going on around the throne, there is nothing about this that's relaxing to me. Like I'm tense just even thinking about the, the intensity of worship and the creatures that are bowing down and the light show and the thunder and so forth. All of this, I'm not relaxed. Now, I'm fulfilled. I am fulfilled in the sense that I would be in the presence of God. And also with His presence along with the terrifying power is this peace that He offers and it's peace because now we are able to do what we were created to do. We're able to be what we were created to be. And so we are the most fulfilled. So I see God's creatures being very fulfilled in this sense. But I don't particularly see relaxation. And it, rely, it reminds me a little bit of the Psalm 23. Where he says, he leads me beside still waters. But then later on in that psalm, he says he, he anoints my head with oil, but my cup overflows. And I love that picture, that psalm. Because you know what happens when your cup overflows. You, it, it's like somebody's you know, Coke, please, or sweet tea, or water, please, and they're pouring it in, and it's, it's like, that's enough. Wait a minute, I can't possibly drink all that. It's spilling all over. And the psalmist is saying, of God... My cup overflows. He blesses me so much. Like I can't even contain all of what God is. That's what I see here before the throne. Is the creatures not so much relaxed like they're chilling, their feet are kicked up and they got their sunglasses on by the sea. But they are just being blessed. Their sock, you know, socks blown off, fulfilled, overfilled with the blessing of God. And then fourth, we see beside the throne. Now all these prepositions don't fit exactly, so don't give me a little bit of grace here because it says around the throne. But you'll see around the throne, verse 6, and on each side of the throne are four living creatures. And here's how they're described. Full of eyes in front and behind, the first living creature like a lion. Second living creature like an ox. The third living creature with the face of a man. And the fourth living creature like an angel in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. Now, this is very similar to some Old Testament visions that people had, in particularly Ezekiel in chapter 1. Ezekiel, Ezekiel pictured these creatures 
with wings. And it's a very strange combination of an angelic being and an animal with animal characteristics and even human characteristics here with these four creatures. I think it symbolizes the seraphim. We also have an Isaiah and R.C. Sproul talked about that this morning, the wings and the seraphim, that they covered their eyes. So God is so glorious and terrifying and, and just so worthy. They cover their eyes and their feet, but they use the other wings to fly. Now these are some of God's greatest. There is a hierarchy, we are led to believe, a hierarchy like archangels or archangels. And so we're led to believe that some were created to be and serve in greater ways than others. And these are some of the best. These are real close to the throne of God. They're right there on each side of the throne. We often see in movies today that depict, say, a great king or a great throne room. And sometimes... In their throne rooms, they'll have these grand chairs and carved into these chairs, like the armrests, you'll see uh, beast-like figures and sometimes even statues around the throne. They're kind of a mix of different beasts and it's to communicate the fierceness and the power and the authority of this king that he has. So we unpack the symbolism here. First, we have a lion. Now, a lion's not too hard to cipher, right? Because they're the king of the jungle. So lions represent a, a kingliness, a rulership. You know, I'm, at the, I'm at the top. You can't get any higher. I'm the most powerful. Everything else beneath me uh, fears me or serves me in some way. So he's, he, the lion sits on the throne of nature and God sits on the throne of the entire universe that he created. So you have this idea of course rulership and kingliness. Then you have an ox. Why an ox? Well, uh, in that culture, you know, today we have uh, John Deere tractors. We got horsepower. But in that day, if you wanted to get anything done, you used an ox. It's a beast of burden. Oxes represented tremendous strength, faithfulness, stability. You know, the more you had the better. So that's the idea behind the ox. There were even in the ancient days some of the people groups revered oxes so much and how useful they were and powerful they were that they decided to have some gods that were like oxes. Some of the pagan religions. It wasn't uncommon to see false gods in the form of an ox. But you also have humanity there. You have Something in the form of man. Now what would that symbolize? Well whenever we bring man into the picture. Man is the, the brains behind the operation. Man is the intellect. Man is the one that can outsmart. Because he can think and reason. Even the greatest beasts. So now you pull into this symbolism. Uh, thinking man. I've mentioned the thinking man statue. Where he is seated. And he's thinking things through. Because we were created to ponder. So there's great, there's, there's kingliness, rulership, there's power and stability around the throne, and there is tremendous wisdom and intelligence around this throne. 
And then we have the flying eagle. The beast that is similar to a flying eagle. Eagle. So what could this symbolize? Well, it could possibly symbolize how quickly and speedily they fly to carry out God's will. God sits on the throne and he makes decrees and his creatures carry out his will. So that could be a possibility, the speediness of it, the accurateness of it. And we also see Exodus 19.4 where God says, You have seen how I bore you up on eagles' wings. Now that's when he's bringing the people of Israel in the promised land. It was a long journey. It was a hard journey. And they made it even harder because of their lack of belief. But God looks at that situation and says, I bore you up on eagles' wings. Now what does that mean? What's that a symbol of? I remember reading one time about eagles and how, well, birds in general do this. But what they have, they, they lay their eggs and those eggs hatch and the little birdies, they begin to grow. And there comes a time when the mama sees that, well, their wings are developed. They just know these things instinctively. And so the mama decides for the little birdies in the nest, it's time for the little eaglets to fly on their own. You have everything you need. You have matured to this point. And the reason that you've grown to this point is to fly on your own and not stay here forever. It's time for the little birdies to leave the nest. I have heard that comment before in the context of parenting. Don't we try to exercise this with our kids? We say, uh, you know, you've grown over these years and you can do a lot of things and now you have a lot of faculties about you like mom and dad and it's time for you to move out on your own. I mean, that's kind of the way life is designed. We, we grow and mature and we can think quicker and better than we used to and we do things. And so that's a sign to you kids that it's time to get out of the nest and stop acting like you can't do things on your own and it's time for the little birdie to fly. If you can grow a beard and a mustache, you might be thinking about it's time to get out on my own. So that's what goes on in these little nests, and it happens with eagles too. But I remember reading that sometimes the, the mama eagles make a mistake, and the little eaglets are not ready to fly. You know, eagles don't build their nests on the ground. They're always a nice, secluded, safe, elevated place. And sometimes a mommy eagle will just nudge the little eaglets out. And so there goes, say one of them was ready, and flaps the wings, look, mommy, I can fly. That's what we want to hear our kids say. Hey, it works. I can do things on my own. I really can make my bed. I can clean up after myself. Who would ever known this? Look, mommy, I can fly. But the eaglet that can't fly, spiraling down. The father eagle comes, swoops under the eaglet, catches that eaglet on its back, and brings it to safety. And 
Jesus or God said, you have seen how I bore you up on eagle's wings. So you have the Israelite people who just were not ready. They could not do these things. They, they stayed immature. They didn't grow in their faith with the exception of Joshua and Caleb. They stayed young and immature. And God was that fatherly figure. Yep, I carried you. I carried you. So God lifts us up. You ever sense that in your life? Have there been times in your life where you've known that either you've blown it or you're just weak and you, and you need to be able to do, any, do these things and you can't? And yet, by God, His grace and His mercy, and we don't deserve it, His grace and His mercy, next thing you know, wow, I'm doing this. This is happening right before my very eyes, and I was convinced this would never happen in my lifetime. See, God is a God that lifts us up. He's the God that swoops under and takes us where we need to be. He's kingly. Uh, He's strong. He's intelligent. He's providential. But notice what these creatures do. That's what I think the, the text wants us to notice. Not so much to figure out, wait a minute, how, how would you draw all those eyes? Especially the ones that are on the inside, not just the front and the back. Uh, that, that's not the intention. You can come out with some pretty silly creatures. Now we can imagine it. But look what they do. Look at their behavior. That's the emphasis here. What are these great mysterious creatures doing They are bowing down and saying forever to the king who lives forever. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. That's what the king on the throne hears in this scene. So they're ascribing to God holiness. Well, what is holiness? Holiness is the the idea of being set apart. Right? When God saves us, we call ourselves saints. We're, we're set apart ones. We're no longer the, the common or the profane. All of the Old Testament laws that we fall asleep when we're trying to read through the Bible every year and we get into Leviticus, Deuteronomy, and there's these endless laws, those laws were practical ways to portray how holy God is and how holy His people are to be. And so God gave them laws and he says, you purposely need to be different. You can't do those things that are bad, those things that are evil that the cultures around you are doing, but also I want you to behave like this. I want you to practice these kind of things. And so God would give them regular utensils and set it apart and say this is to be used only in the temple. So it's this idea of being completely set apart. And here is God. He is completely set apart. He's the creator of all things, not the created thing. He is holy. He's transcendent. And day and night, never ceasing, this is ascribed to him by some of the greatest creatures that he brought into existence. It's it's a special use. It's almost even hard to think about God without thinking about holiness because we, we picture a holy God. 1 Peter 1.16 says, You shall be holy because God is holy. And that doesn't mean you shall be God because God is holy, but it means that we should emulate God. We should strive to be 
like God in that sense. Separate ourselves. You know, God does call us to do things that are countercultural, that will cause us to be shamed, mocked, and persecuted. And that's part of what it means to be a Christian. Because if we're just the same as the world, then what's that? That's not a church. That's not a separate kingdom. That's the kingdom of the world. So he calls us out of the kingdom of the world and he, he equips us to be in the kingdom of God. It's to be holy and separate. He does that in our lives, but we ascribe that to him. We recognize that about him. We find, the same, we find these words two times in Scripture. The other time was in Isaiah 6, which was mentioned this morning as well. Holy, holy, holy. It's the picture of the seraphim. Now, what was on the ark in the most holy place? It was clad in gold, the mercy seat, and it had the seraphim pointed toward each other. The very holy place, that's where you met with God in the Old Testament. You couldn't get any closer to the presence of God. You could only go in there one time, and that was only one person, the high priest, one time a year. This is, this is an incredible atmosphere of otherworldliness and transcendence. And so these creatures are recognizing the transcendence of God. Even the highest of the high creatures are just bowed before Him. It's the, the, the great ones get off of their thrones and worship the One who is on the great throne. And there's a lesson in that as well, is there not? A lot of times we, if you want to admit, the, the best way to be kingdom-minded, the best way to make an impact in, in the church and the world is by getting off of our thrones and bowing before the great throne. By not creating our little kingdoms, but accommodating ourselves to the kingdom of God. And many times we want to be the great ones. We want to be the elevated ones. When true ministry, if we, if we are already humbled before the Lord, ascribing His greatness, if, if He is the center of our lives, then we're already a great church. Because that's what it means to be great in the kingdom. It means to empty yourself and make everything of God. To center your whole life, your thought, your love, your affections around God. That's what is a mark of kingdom greatness. And so we see tremendous kingdom greatness happening as they empty themselves of everything that they have. Why? Because they realize I wouldn't even be here without this Holy One on the throne. I exist because of this Holy One on the throne. He brought me into being. How can I not thank Him? To say that God created us is a dangerous thing because it means that we're responsible to Him. And we don't like that. Humanity doesn't like that. So we come up with different stories about how we got here like evolution. And evolution, there's nothing out there. There's just what's here on earth. It's, it's the book of Ecclesiastes. There's nothing above the clouds. All you see is what you get. There's no meaning to be had anywhere else. I uh, recently listened to an atheist who said, uh, not in person, but on, on uh, YouTube, an interview... Uh, an atheist that said, you know, I wake up every morning and I remind myself 
Life is meaningless. Everything I do today has no significance or meaning at all because that's where you have to land if you're an atheist. And so the person said, well then how do you, that sounds like a pretty miserable life. Like you, you remind yourself that life is meaningless and everything you do today makes no impact whatsoever because it matters not. How, do you, how can you even live with that mindset? So they said, well, I wake up and I say that to myself and then I realize, oh, I need to go to the loo. You know where this person's from, not America. It's the bathroom. So they need to go to the loo. And so I go to the loo. And then I, while I'm there, I think, oh, I've got a hunger pain. So I'm going to go get something to eat. And then I think, well, I need to give my lectures at the university today, so I better get my things together. So you see what's happening is this person who says there's no meaning and no significance to life, and that's what I tell myself every morning, is acting as if there's meaning and significance to life. Oh, I need to do this. I need to teach these students this. Why would you take the time to teach anybody anything if life is absolutely void of meaning? You can't make an impact. It doesn't matter. So the point is that even those that say there is no holy other, no meaning to be had out there, can't live that way. They, they rob and steal from the Christian worldview, or at least a theistic worldview. You see before the throne, all the meaning, all the purpose in the universe is taking place around this core picture where you have the God who created it all. And everything is fulfilled cup overflowing as they just pour themselves out and recognize who He is. It's not about them. What is the key to kingdom unity? How can we be one as a, as a church and as a body of Christ when we come from so many different cultures, backgrounds, upbringings? It's because we think the same about God like they do in heaven, right? They all have the same thought, and the same thought leads to the same actions and the same behaviors. That's what binds us together. It's our unity and our understanding about how God has revealed Himself in Holy Scripture. Because we agree on that wholeheartedly, and the other things just fall into place. Seek first my kingdom and my righteousness, and all these things will be given to you. That's what's happening in heaven. You, you've never seen such a seeking of the, the holiness of God here. So no, notice what happens when the creatures fall in worship. Whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to Him who's seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, then the 24 elders fall down and they give thanks to Him who lives forever and ever. Worthy are you, our Lord, our God, to receive Glory and honor and power. There's a lot of receiving, which means there's a lot of giving there. You created all things. See, it's contagious. The creatures fall down. The elders fall down. Anybody in the presence of God in heaven, they can't help themselves. It's what you do when you're that consumed with the glory of God. You just empty yourself around Him. And we see what the psalmist talks about in Psalm 156. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Everything that exists, everything that has breath, use it to praise the Lord. So the throne is the key here. The throne is the key. Let me close with this. And I kind of gave a spoiler alert last 
message. That, you know, heaven is about the worthiness of God. Things happen. He has a plan. History is unfolding. But it's because God is so worthy. So heaven is about the worthiness of God. That's why we hear this. It's just repeated time and time again. It's not just that you're worthy, but you're worthy, worthy, worthy. That's a way to say it couldn't be any truer. Like when Jesus said, truly, truly, truly. So like this is really to be taken serious. The worthiness of God is really to be taken serious because He is absolutely so deserving in His being and His existence. Now, if we apply that to our lives, why do we do what we do? And we can come up with so many reasons, say even just, just to uh, corral it to church and not outside the walls. Why do we do what we do? There's a lot of good reasons to be here. There's, there are things that happen. Friendships are made. Uh, we, we grow. We learn. Uh, sometimes we have good feelings. The main reason that we're here the foundation reason that we should be here is because God is worthy of our presence. And a lot of times we get hung up with what's going on in our lives and we think that, well, I need to get my life straight or if only this could happen, then I would treat God this way or I would worship God this way. We try to make deals with God. We're even willing... We, we, Our sinful bent nature does everything we can sometimes to turn God into our servant instead of us serving Him. Now God, if you would just do this, I'm even willing to work hard. I'm even willing to change some of my habits if you could just give me this and this because I can't get it on my own. That's not what we see in the scene of heaven. We see creatures that are the most fulfilled in their existence when they are actually emptying themselves out, pouring everything, giving what they have and ascribing it to God. Why? Because He's worthy. There's something to say for that. And sometimes that concept is missing in Christendom. We do things, well, not because we get this transaction and get things out of it, though we do. We worship God. We bow before Him because He's worthy. And if He's not worthy... We have no business being here. We have no business bending our lives to somebody who is not worthy of our allegiance. We do it because God is worthy, worthy, worthy. We exist because He's worthy, worthy, worthy. And when we give Him ourselves, our cup overflows. That's the message of the throne room of God. May God bless the preaching of His Word.